Good morning. Normally the mic isn't too high, so I don't know about you, but when I heard the chimes this morning before the start of the service, I, I thought back to probably someplace in lower Manhattan, there's chimes going off this morning. Brethren, on this day of remembrance, please pray with me for illumination. Oh Lord, we ask your favor, we ask your protection, we ask your peace. We don't always understand your ways, but we seek to. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our eyes that we may see, open our ears that we may hear your word. Amen. Today we'll be reading the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31. Page number 2 should be fairly easy to find in the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he had made everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thank you, Danny. It's great to be back with everyone. I hope you had a good Labor Day weekend. I was out uh, in Bowie, Texas, catching fish. I did catch one. I have a picture to prove it, so it's not going to one of those fish stories, but it was about that big. But I uh, hope you had a good Labor Day weekend. I heard there was a wonderful celebration as we had one combined service. And, and this Sunday, we're getting back to the story. If you've been with us since January, you know that we've been taking a journey through the story, which is the the Bible in narrative form. It's the grand narrative of Scripture. And and if you remember, on Christmas Eve, we gave every family who came to our church a copy of the story for free because we want everyone in our church to know the grand story of Scripture. Did you know that in the United States, 88% of the homes in the United States own a Bible? And of those homes that own a Bible, most of those homes own 3.5 copies of the Bible. I guess that's three full copies and then one New Testament on top of that. Did you also know that two-thirds of Americans, when surveyed, believe that the Bible contains everything a person needs to know to have a meaningful life? That they they believe the Bible has great counsel and wisdom. But only 20% of Bible owners in America read the Bible at least four times a week. As Americans, if we believe that the the Bible contains everything a person needs to know to have a meaningful life, why don't we read it every day, not just four times a week, or for some, just once or maybe none? 
After all, the, the recent reveal study from Willow Creek Church in Chicago that surveyed over 1,000 churches, which, which had 250,000 people turn in their survey, they discovered quite clearly that the most significant thing you can do to grow in your walk with God is to, is to read the Bible daily. So why don't we read the Bible daily? Are we too busy playing word games on our iPhones? Are, are, are we too busy watching sports on television? Are we too busy going from here to there to the next activity? We just don't have the time to sit down and read God's word? As Americans, we are busy. But surely we can find at least 15 meaningful minutes a day to be still and to read God's holy word. Why don't we spend more time as Americans? If we all have 3.5 copies of a Bible in our homes, why don't we spend more time reading God's word? Well, my gut tells me that it's, the reason, one of the reasons we don't read the Bible is not just because we're busy, we are busy, but I think we can make the time. I believe that probably one of the main reasons people don't read their Bible is because when they read it, they can't understand it. I mean, I mean they read passages of scripture and it just seems so foreign to them. I mean, it was written centuries and centuries ago. I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, you know, Genesis to Revelation, and you start with the story of creation, that part of that Danny just read, which is a great story, and you've got Adam and Eve and the slithery sly serpent, the first sin, and then you've got Cain killing Abel, and then you've got Noah and the great story of the flood, and we all love that story, right, with the ark and the, 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 the animals that go two by two. And, and then you get to, of course, you've got Abraham, and you've got Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and the amazing technicolored coat. And then you get to Exodus and the story of Moses and the deliverance and crossing through the Red Sea and receiving the Ten Commandments. And it's a very exciting book, but then you hit Leviticus, and it seems to just stop. <laughs> I mean, it is hard to plow through Leviticus. I mean, what do the rules and regulations regarding all these different sacrifices and all these different offerings have to do with our lives today? What is the lens through which we should read Leviticus, so that we might understand it and see how even Leviticus applies to our life today. To discover the lens through which we should read scripture so that we might better understand it and see how it applies to our lives today, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter one, beginning at verse one. It may be found on page 1127 of your Red Pew Bible, 1127 of your Red Pew Bible, John chapter one, beginning at verse one. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much that you inspired John to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us and leads us in all truth. Lord, Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit this morning that you might open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts, that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your Holy Word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your Son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. John chapter one, beginning at verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I want to pause there just for a moment before I continue reading. I just want us to pause and reflect on that. In the beginning. 
Now, if you were with us in January when we started our journey through the story, you know that, well, the Bible begins with that very phrase, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. Before there was life on this earth, before there was creation, there was God. And God spoke a powerful word, and life came to be. Yes, in the beginning was God. God is the primary subject of the Bible. The Bible is not intended to be a science book. It's not simply a history book. No, it's a, it's a book about God, and, and God is the principal actor. He's the principal subject, and it's about God and how God moves through his creation to bring his redemptive plan. Yes, in the beginning was God. And when John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Every Jew reading the gospel of John in the first century would have immediately raced to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where they would have been reminded that in the beginning, in the very beginning, there was God. There was the Word, God's holy Word. Now, the New Testament was originally written in Greek uh, because the language of trade in the first century Greco-Roman world was Greek and it was Latin. And and so if you wanted to write something that many people would read, you'd write it in Greek or you'd write it in Latin. And so the Gospel of John was originally written in Greek and, and the Greek phrase or the Greek term for word here is logos, logos. We get the English word logic from logos. And Greek philosophers taught that That the world, while it's in constant motion, there was the the logos, the divine mind of God. It was the logic of God that kept the world in order. And so God, when John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the logos. He's speaking to Jews living in a Greco-Roman world saying the mind of God was revealed in the beginning. And of course today we use words to communicate, don't we? If I want to tell you what I'm thinking and what's in my heart and my mind, I I will use words and I'll speak. And prior to the birth of Jesus, the people of Israel had been, been living in, in mostly a silent time. There hadn't been a prophet since Malachi. Malachi lived 400 years before Jesus. There hadn't been a prophet who had spoken a clear word since Malachi. And so many of the Jews may have thought that God had abandoned them. After all, they were a conquered people living under Roman rule. They were subject to Roman rules, and, and they were no longer sovereign. They no longer had the freedom that they once had when they were their own sovereign nation. No, they were an oppressed people. And that God hadn't had a prophet since Malachi, 400 years before Jesus. But then Jesus comes. The word made flesh. And God wants to communicate a very clear word to us through his son, Jesus. The clearest word that God has ever spoken. And so John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This little baby boy, born of a virgin mother named Mary in a humble manger in Bethlehem is the word, God's one and only son, fully God and and fully man. He's come to speak to us, to communicate an important message that we all need to hear. 
Now, it's true that in the first century, the Jews had the Old Testament. They, they had the law of God. They had the Ten Commandments. They, they had the Shema, which is the most important commandment in all of the, the Bible, according to Jesus. And, and we know that's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Jews, every time they gathered together, they recite the Shema from memory. They, they would post the Shema on the doorposts of their home. And, and here it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The people of Israel knew the word of God. They they had the written word of God, but they had never seen anyone fulfill all that the word said, all that the law had to say. So God sends his son Jesus to show us how to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God sends his son Jesus to show us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, if we want to know what God would have us do, we begin by looking at Jesus. For he's the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and who God's calling us to become. Yes, we should read the Bible through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We should read Leviticus with all of its rules about sacrifices and offerings through the lens of Jesus and see how Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. You understand the cross a lot better when you read Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Then you begin to understand how Jesus came to fulfill the law, the ritual laws of the Old Testament. We should read the moral law of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, the the Ten Commandments. And look at how Jesus, in his life, fulfilled the moral law. He he lived it out. He was perfect. He lived lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father in all that he said and, and all that he did. And in his own teachings, he's inviting us to to join him in in obeying the law and and getting to the heart of the law as we read about in the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, all of the Bible and all of life should be seen through the lens of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. For in the beginning, in the very beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Notice in the passage that Danny read just a moment ago in Genesis chapter 1. It said, let us make man in our image. There's the plural, the trinity, right there at the beginning of creation, creating humanity in the image of God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light of Christ has come into this world, and And he became sin for us by dying on a cross. And then on the third day, he rose again. The the darkness has not overcome Jesus. He is greater than darkness. He is greater than sin. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist that John's talking about. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came to this earth and he invites all to come to him, Jew and Gentile alike. Anyone can come to Jesus and find new life, eternal life in him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John is unambiguous here. He wants to make it very clear that Jesus took on flesh. He became a real human being, fully God and fully man. He didn't appear to be a man. No, he was a human being who walked among us and taught us and healed us and ultimately died a real death on a cross. But why? Why did Jesus in all his glory leave heaven and come down to this earth to become a baby in a manger? Why would Jesus humble himself in such a way? After 400 years of silence, what is God trying to say to us in this word made flesh exactly? I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God wants to let us know that I'm with you and I love you because I love you. I'm with you and I love you because I love you. Please say that with me. I'm with you, and I love you because I love you. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which I recited a moment ago, God demonstrates his great love, his amazing love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his amazing love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beginning with Adam and Eve's first sin, their original sin of humanity, where they wanted to be like God by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin has created a chasm between a holy God and sinful man. As we read in the Psalms, the psalmist, Psalm number 5, verse 4, we read the the quote uh, that tells us that, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. Our sin separates us from God. And as we read through the Old Testament this last winter and spring, we could see that humanity has been messing up since the very beginning. And Adam and Eve were given one simple rule and they couldn't obey it. Then they had Cain and they had Abel. And Cain kills Abel. There's no love there. And then, of course, we have the story of Noah. And Noah was really a drunkard, if you remember the whole story. Then you have the story of Abraham. And Abraham was an anxious liar. Jacob was a thief. Samson was selfish. King David was an adulterer and a murderer. King Solomon was an idolatrous polygamist. Less than half the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom of of Judah, are any good. Not half of them aren't any good. And all the kings of the northern kingdom are horrible idolaters, beginning with Jeroboam. They're, They're always turning their hearts towards other gods, whether it be Baal or Asher, whoever. None of the people of Israel are really faithful to God. Yet God doesn't leave them. He continues to love them. He continues to make himself known to them. He loves them with an unconditional love. As Moses says to the people, as God says through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 7 to 8, it says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, speaking to Israel, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. 
God loves us because he loves us. And in his sovereign will, he's chosen to love us. He's chosen to love us and he's chosen to make himself known to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He wants to show us the the full extent of his love. Yes, Jesus came with a very clear message. I'm with you and I love you because I love you. God doesn't love us this much. God loves us this much. As Jesus says in John 15, no greater love is there than this than a man who's willing to die for his friends. There is no greater love than the unconditional, sacrificial love of of Jesus Christ. And we can't begin to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we can't really begin to love our neighbors, ourselves, until we first grasp the depth and the breadth of God's amazing love for us. And then in gratitude for his love, we will naturally love God and we'll love the things that God loves, which is his people. Yes, John makes it real clear. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word translated dwelt among us here can also be literally translated as to tabernacle, to set up your tent. As Eugene Peterson says, Jesus moved to the neighborhood. He came to be with us. But as those first century Jews would read that Greek term for tabernacle, immediately they would run to the, to the tabernacle that they used to have when they were wandering in the wilderness with Moses and, and how God had them set up a tabernacle where they put the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments and that was the holiest of holies and that's where God was always present, was in his tabernacle. And the tabernacle has come and put on real flesh and blood so that he might be with us, so that he might show us just how much God loves us. Yes, God doesn't avoid the mess of humanity, the sin, the brokenness of humanity. Jesus engages our mess and ultimately takes on the mess and takes on our sin by, as Paul explains, becoming sin for us. He died hung on a cross. And through the light of this love, Jesus now shows us a different way to live and a different way to love. You know, in the first 18 verses that I read to you in the Gospel of John, um, the word light is mentioned seven times. Light is a major term throughout the Gospel of John, and it usually represents Jesus. We see it first in verse four to five. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse five points out to the fact that in his bodily resurrection, Jesus overcame the darkness of sin and death. And in the Gospel of John, later in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus will say to those listening, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus came to this earth to set up his tabernacle to dwell among us and to shine the light of God's love in a dark and broken world. And as his followers, Jesus is calling us to do the same, to shine his light, to reflect his light in a dark and broken world. Today, as we all know, is the 15th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. Do you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? Do you remember the darkness that came over our country that day when four commercial airlines were hijacked by terrorists? One hijacked plane flew into the Pentagon, another hijacked plane crashed into the field in Pennsylvania, and two hijacked hijacked planes flew into the Twin Towers of New York City. From a different angle as it slammed into the... 
you remember where you were when you first saw that? I was in Princeton Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey, and my wife and I had just driven through New York City the weekend before, on Labor Day weekend. We were coming back from visiting my aunt and uncle in Northampton, Massachusetts, and we drove through the city, and we saw the Twin Towers in the, in the distance, and we said to each other, before we leave Princeton, we've got to go to the top of those towers. We've got to see the view from up there. That trip never happened. Eight days later, the towers were destroyed, and over 2,600 people lost their lives. If you remember that morning, the initial reports that there could be as many as 30,000 people who might lose their lives in the Twin Towers alone. There was darkness over our country that day. There was fear. There was grief. There was anger. We all had heavy hearts. We mourned those who were killed and reminded once again of the darkness and the evil possibilities of humanity. But in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the grief, anger and the pain, there was light. There was light. People often wonder, where was God on September 11, 2001? I'll tell you where God was. God was moving through the hearts of the New York Fire Department as they climbed to the tops of these buildings to try and save lives, even risking their own. God was moving in the hearts of the New York Police Department and the Port Authority Police Department as they did all that they could to save and rescue lives. God was at St. Paul's Church, the oldest church in Manhattan, that is literally across the street from Ground Zero. Miraculously, St. Paul's Church survived the collapse of the Twin Towers, and immediately it served as a, as a house of prayer, a place of refuge, and, a, and an emergency triage for first responders on 9-11. God was also moving in the hearts of two retired Christian Marines, Jason Thomas and David Carnes. These men watched the attacks on television, and then immediately they responded by putting on their U.S. Marine Corps uh, uniforms and driving to Ground Zero. Retired U.S. Marine David Carnes was actually working with Deloitte & Touche, which is a major accounting firm in Wilton, Connecticut, when he saw the attack on TV. A devout Christian, immediately he went to his church and he found his pastor and he said, please pray for me. Pray that I will help be able to help find some survivors. Then he put on his Marine Corps uniform and drove as fast as he could to ground zero. Jason Thomas, an ex-Marine living on Long Island, had just dropped off his kids to go to school. And then he learned about the attack on the Twin Towers. Raised in the church... Jason Thomas was always taught that you are your brother's keeper. Do you remember when Cain kills Abel? We read about it in the story. Cain kills Abel, and Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, we are our brother's keeper. And so Jason Thomas got in his car and put on his Marine uniform and went as quickly as he could to ground zero. And when David Carnes and Jason Thomas showed up, they didn't know each other, but they got there and identified each other as Marines, and they went to the the fire department. They said, how can we help? Has anyone gone to the center to find those under the rubble? And the police department and the fire department say, no, it's, the buildings are too hot. It will melt your boots right now. You've got to let it cool off. Don't go in there. It's not safe. You will die. But David Carnes and Jason Thomas, men of faith, not fear, Marines who always go forward, not backwards, were convicted that God was calling them to go into the mess, to go to the epicenter of ground zero. They knew that God was calling them to help save some lives crawling on their hands and knees often, carefully working their way through the rubble they yelled through every hole they found, United States Marines, yell and tap if you can hear us. United States Marines, yell and tap if you can hear us. 
United States Marines, yell and tap if you can hear us. They did this for hours. No response. And then finally they heard a a small voice saying, here we are. Please, don't leave us. David Carnes rushed to the, the voice that he could hear underneath the rubble, and he said, this is U.S. Marine Staff Sergeant David Carnes. Consider yourself rescued. The Marines do not leave their wounded behind. And eventually, they were able to help draw two Port Authority policemen out of the rubble. These men would not have survived if David Carnes and Jason Thomas hadn't been led by faith to go into the mess of Ground Zero. As we reflect on our text this morning, we can see that that's exactly what Jesus did. He left the comfort and the beauty and the glory of heaven and he came to ground zero. He came to this earth as a baby in a manger. He got in the midst of our mess. He took on our mess, our sin, so that we might be saved. And in gratitude for God's amazing grace, Jesus is calling all of us who are his followers to follow his model of ministry, to go where the mess is, to go where the pain is, to go where the brokenness is, and to offer that love that we first received from him. A few moments ago, I shared that uh, I was in Princeton Seminary when 9-11 happened. Classes actually hadn't started by then. But I got a blast email saying there was going to be an emergency prayer meeting at the Miller Chapel and that we should all come. And so I came to Miller Chapel and it was packed out. There were professors and students and people from the community all there to pray. And we began to pray. We began to cry out to God saying, God, please help us. Be with Mayor Giuliani. Be with the president. Be with the New York Fire Department. Be with the New York Police Department. Be with all those loved ones who've lost their loved one today. Oh, God, give us the wisdom of Solomon to know what to do. Oh, Lord, we repent from our sins. Guide us, lead us. And we cried out to God in this wonderful popcorn prayer throughout Miller Chapel. And then in the back of the chapel, this female voice with a foreign accent said, And Father, forgive the terrorists, for they know not what they do. And immediately... We were taken to the cross of Christ and we were reminded of how Christ in his great love for us after being flogged and beaten and being ridiculed, hanging, dying on a cross, prays for those who persecute him saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Jesus is calling us to do the same. To pray for those who are far from God. To pray for those, to offer forgiveness for those who have hurt us. To be an instrument of his grace. Jesus set up his tent among us. Where has God placed your tent? Where has God placed your life? You have been placed in a neighborhood specifically to minister to that neighborhood. You have been placed in a school to minister to that school. You have been placed in a, in a place of work or employment to minister to that place of employment, to love on your coworkers as Christ has loved us unconditionally, sacrificially. You know, as a church, we often minister to the homeless because the homeless are downtown. That's where God has placed us. We're a downtown church. We minister to the San Jacinto neighborhood through the Friends and Neighbor program and through Heal the City and through uh, One Square Mile because we have been placed near one of the poorest neighborhoods in our entire community. And God wants us to go where the mess is, to love and exude his love to others. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then in the Gospel of Matthew, he says the remarkable in the Sermon on the Mount, 
In Matthew chapter five, verses 14 to 16, he says this to all of us. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How is God calling us to be a light of his love in our place of work, in our neighborhoods, in our social circles? Fifteen years after 9-11, I still remember the fear and the anger and the sadness that I felt that day. But the good news of our text is that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God was with them that day. God was with us that day. He's been with us in the past. He's with us today, and he'll be with us tomorrow as we seek to be a light of his love. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you that you allow us to be an instrument of your love, to point others to your amazing, unconditional love. Oh, God, if we're not sure how we can serve our neighbor, I pray you might guide us in that, that you might direct us to see how we might love others as you have loved us with an unconditional, sacrificial love. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen. We had a team recently go to the, uh, Ireland on a mission trip, and we've got two of the members of that mission trip who are going to share with us now about how God used their team to be a light of God's love in Ireland.